Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. We have a very special show for you today. It's an interview with education reporter Emily Hanford, who you might know as the person behind the much heralded Soul to Story podcast about the the science of reading. Emily has been working in public media for more than two decades as a reporter, producer, editor, news director, and program host. Her work has won numerous awards, including a DuPont Columbia University Award and a Casey Medal. In 2017, she won the Excellence in Media Reporting on Education Research Award from the American Education Research Association. Her groundbreaking podcast, Hard Words, on why children aren't being taught to read was a winner of the inaugural Public Service Award from EWA in 2019. And now she is much heralded for the newer work that she is doing that is resulting in states passing laws and rethinking how they teach reading. We hope you enjoy this interview with Emily Hanford. And here she is. Emily Hanford, thank you for joining the show today. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me again. I'm very interested to do a status update because we have talked before in the past, and I have not watched the arc of things when it comes to the story around the science of reading. And it does feel like 2016, 17, 18, we weren't nearly as enamored with this story, like the fact that there are millions of kids in the United States are sitting in classrooms where the instruction that they're getting on reading is not matching what science says that that instruction should be. And the outcome of that is huge in terms of what happens to you when you're not reading, when you're supposed to be reading at an early age. Statistically, lots of things go bad for you after that. And I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I have to just start from a question that I've probably asked you before, but I have to ask you again. <laughs> How do we get so far down the line in education history in the United States? How do we get 150 years in or more? And we have a reporter, an education reporter, start making noise about the fact that evidence-based reading instruction is not taking place across the country in schools. How does that happen with so many people involved? <laughs> I can't get my head around it. So I, I have to ask you, why was this even a story in the first place? You know, I think I just started understanding and then writing about a story that was kind of hiding in plain sight. And I think that's a phrase because that's a real thing, that things hide in plain sight. And I think things that hide in plain sight are sort of some of the trickiest, right? They're hiding in plain sight for a reason. There's something going on, but people aren't able to see it for what it is or connect some dots to understand what's really going on. I think I sort of came along at the right moment. I mean, I don't think that what I have done as a reporter is anything more than connecting a lot of dots of things that were already happening and work that was already being done. It's just that people really did need someone to help them connect the dots. Mm -hmm. So this whole science of reading movement, which we can talk about what that is and what that means exactly and some of my concerns about it, frankly. But this whole science of reading movement has been a long time coming. I don't think that we would be where we are today in this conversation if we hadn't kind of done this once before. <laughs> so it was a little bit of deja vu all over again for some people. And I think the fact that we had a big policy attempt at this 
I'm talking about reading first and a lot of the things that kind of flowed from that. I think the fact that we had that and the fact that for a variety of reasons, it didn't hold, it didn't stick, didn't work, kind of created the conditions actually for this thing called balanced literacy to take root. But I think the fact that that happened is significant. Like we wouldn't be having this conversation if we hadn't had that conversation. And I think just one of the things literally is that there just are people in the system who learned a lot during reading first, who are still in the system. And sort of like, I've been trying to say this for years and years and years. So that's one element of people I've been hearing from for a long time, which is like, I've been trying to say something about this for a long time. I learned something really important about how kids learn to read and how to teach it. And I feel like other people aren't listening to me or even perhaps more consequentially, I can't even say anything about it kind of there's a strain of sort of like fear in a lot of the emails that I would get from educators saying like I feel like I can't speak up about this but then I think one of the most significant factors in all of this that we've talked about before are parents so I really think the parents of the kids who've struggled the most when schools don't teach kids how to read in ways that line up with what we know about what you need to learn like there's a group of kids who suffer the most when that happens They're the kids who learning to read is hardest for. So those are the kids with dyslexia. And so those parents have gotten really organized over the last 10 or 15 years and I think have kind of laid a foundation for this sort of movement as it exists today. And as I think we've talked about before, it was dyslexia and an interest in that, not knowing anything about it personally. Several years ago, I sort of got interested in in the fact that I was hearing the same story from parents all over the country about like, I knew something wasn't right. My kid wasn't learning how to read. I was going to the school. They were saying, don't worry, it'll be fine. She'll catch up. We just need to find them the right book. And I think it was those parents that helped me understand that their kids' problems were connected to some core instruction issues, right? Like they're almost like the canaries in the coal mine. They're suffering the most when kids aren't taught to read, but there's a whole swath of kids who are having problems. So both they sort of drew my attention to that connection and even just my attention to this whole body of research on reading. And then I think I was able as a, just in a basic sort of explanatory journalism kind of way, explain some of these key concepts from the so-called science of reading and the connection between dyslexia and the trouble that a lot of kids are having in school in terms of not being able to get what they need from reading instruction. And then I think the final piece, well, there's many pieces to it, but I think a really huge piece to what's going on today are the teachers, especially teachers who are parents or parents who are teachers. This is the story for so many people and you hear some of it and sold a story, which is I was teaching kids to read or so I thought for five years, 10 years, 15 years. And then I had a kid and he or she went to school and I had that same story of saying, something's going on here. Something's wrong. The school says everything is fine. And then they looked at themselves in the mirror and said, well, I'll try to teach him or her how to read. And they didn't know how they realized like, I don't know how to teach this kid to read. So this story is resonating so much with teachers. And when we actually like count up all the responses we've gotten to sold a story, that is the group of people who are responding more than any other It's not really a surprise to me, but it's gratifying. Like certainly I've heard from parents for many years now, and it's really teachers who are writing now. And they have been all along, but they are really the group that has been most responsive to the podcast. Similar experience, but not the exact same. You know, when I was on a school board more 
than a decade ago, I quickly learned that there were parent groups that had just really educated themselves on very specific issues. And they would come to me as a board member, not as constituents who knew nothing, but as people coming to say, can we have coffee? I have a binder full of information I would love to give you. (laughs) And I would not know what I was walking into as a board member, except to sit down, have coffee and start talking. And then they would open that binder and then they would start giving me a little mini lesson on something. And chief among these type of parents were, you just named them, dyslexia parents, parents who had special needs or special education students and parents of gifted and talented kids, especially college-educated parents who were trying to solve a problem for their kid and felt like they were not being heard. They became a student of the issue, and then they actually became more of an expert than some of the people we had in the district on that issue. And as a board member, one of the smartest things that I ever did We'll start listening to those parents and walking the journey with them. But, you know, to circle back, your podcast series is called Sold a Story. It's very popular and it has been widely distributed and listened to amongst different groups, teachers, parents, other reporters and journalists. It's having an impact in many ways that I think that a journalist would always want their work to have, right? Like people in legislatures are passing it along and talking about it and saying, you know, hey, maybe we should pass a law here or there. (laughs) And that particular series is broken up into five or six episodes. Yeah, six original episodes and two bonus. So you have total of eight that, you know, if people want to go and listen to it, please do go listen to it. But it starts out the way that many of you journalists like to do things. You start with a small story and then it gets big. And I can't help but feeling and listening to this, it felt a little bit like big tobacco. It felt a little bit like the opioid and pharmaceutical companies. It felt that way when I started getting to the parts that I didn't know about in terms of the ignorance empire is big business. There's like corporations that literally have, I think it was, you mentioned 1.6 billion, one of the publishers had invested in the old way of teaching reading. That's a pretty big market. Now it makes it easier for me to understand why the lowly little parent who has some issue with a thing is having such a hard time getting districts or states to kind of shift gears. There's a little bit of arrogance, but a whole bunch of kind of profit in the ignorance empire there. And how much of that do you think is the problem? I mean, one thing is getting teachers and others on board, but the other is that there's a business here. Yeah. It's interesting because I think that when we went into this reporting, many of our editors and sort of the people around us, me and Christopher Peake, who were reporting on us together, and sort of like just people out there in the world, I think, were sort of like, well, this is a follow the money story, right? This is what journalists do. We'll follow the money and we'll find some answers. And I remember feeling at first like, I don't know. I'm not sure it's a follow the money story. I'm not sure we're going to find the answers that we think we're going to find in Follow the Money. Other people have made analogies to big tobacco and opioids. I have to be very careful with such an analogy for legal reasons, but also because I don't really think the analogy totally holds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't think that this was a case of people knew something and continued to act otherwise. I think it really is the case of people really believing in what they were selling. I mean, actually selling for money, but also just selling ideas, things that they were influential about. And I think in our culture and any culture, there are many reasons why people have a hard time letting go of their beliefs or even identifying in some ways what their beliefs are. And the fact that you might be making money on something is one really good reason not to change your mind about something, right? Also, because when you make money off of something, 
it's an indication that you're doing something that the market wants. People are buying it. So I really do think in the case of Sold a Story, we have a situation where there are some people and we sort of end up focusing on one publisher and four really influential authors who I think are sort of the brand name version of the ideas we're talking about. But I think what I started to realize years ago when I was starting to get into this topic is there's like a sea that everyone was swimming in around reading and their understanding of how it works, how we learn to do it, what kids need to learn to read. There were sort of some assumptions or some key ideas that people believed in that you could find within some of these materials, the curriculum, assessments, intervention programs that have become very popular under the name of balanced literacy. And we focus very much on some people who were sort of the brand name version of that and were sort of the most successful at selling those ideas. But lots of other people, lots of other companies have been selling these same basic ideas. And Sold a Story was really, for me, while I think sometimes the idea was, oh, well, this is a follow the money story, I was like, no, I think this is really like a belief story. And this is actually, and I kept saying to my editor, I think we're really doing a story here about an idea. There's an idea about reading and how it works that's taken hold in education. How did it get there? What is that idea? What's wrong with that idea? How did it get there? Why does it persist? And I think Money is one reason, but there are many, many other reasons too. And of course, we have to acknowledge we live in a market-based economy, for better or worse, right? And our education system exists within it. Things need to be sold. Schools need to buy things. Schools need materials. There's nothing sort of wrong inherently with making money. The question is, what are you making money on? What are you selling? How do you know that that is true? And I think we have to recognize that as is the case with many things that we recognize are problems in our culture, there are many other things. And we have to realize that many people are complicit. Many people have played a role in making this thing a problem. These ideas were sold, but people bought them. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that they were packaged the way they were is it's because what people wanted. So many of this balanced literacy curriculum, I think, is there because it's what schools wanted to buy. Let's stop there for a second and say, what are these ideas? You say these ideas. Yes, let's be specific. So all of Sold a Story, the podcast that you mentioned before, six episodes that came out last fall, about four and a half plus hours of listening, I think. It's all really about one idea. And I do say this in episode one, and I think it's important to remind people that it's about one idea. Because <laughs> first of all, we pulled it off to my editor. I was like, can we make a whole podcast about one idea? Well, we'll see. And the idea is that Little kids, when they're learning how to read, don't have to learn how to sound out the written words because they have lots of other ways that they can figure out the words as they're learning to read. They don't have to learn all that difficult stuff about how written English works to be able to sound out those words in a laborious way. They can. That's one strategy you can use to try to figure out a word. But, oh, there's all these other things you can do and you can teach kids to try to figure out the words. That's really the idea that we look at in Sold a Story. And that idea is problematic because it turns out that knowing how to laboriously sound out a word we've never seen before and try to come up with a pronunciation and see if it's a word that we know, this turns out to be the way that your brain, everyone's brain, is getting those words written forms of words into the long-term memory so that reading the words is like a reflex 
and you're freeing up your attention and your brain power, cognitive energy to focus on the meaning of what you're reading, which is the goal. Everyone agrees that's the goal. We've had these silly debates about where it's like, are we going to focus on meaning or are we going to focus on decoding the words? And it's like, wait, what are we talking about? Meaning's the goal. Everyone knows it. <laughs> the question always has been, how does a little kid get there? Mm-hmm. How does a kid go from knowing how to speak a language to being able to read it? And what we've discovered, not me, but what a lot of people doing fascinating research have discovered is that learning how to speak a language and learning how to read a language are quite different. They depend on each other. They're very interrelated, but there's different things going on in your brain, different things you need to learn and different things that you need to be taught to get going on this process. So what you just said is the wrong idea, right? Yes. Just so people know, if you just tuned in and you heard Emily say all that, she is literally saying that that is not the way that we should be thinking about reading that if a kid doesn't do the rigor of trying to sound words out and have the awareness of how you sound things out, that there's many other ways they could figure out what it is. Maybe there's pictures or there's context clues. There's something else. Why is that wrong, though? I mean, there are pictures. There are context clues. So why would that be wrong? Sure. And that's actually important because it doesn't mean we shouldn't have pictures. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't use context. This all gets down to some really subtle stuff, which is why we needed six episodes and four and a half hours to take it apart because this stuff is actually really subtle. Because it turns out that you and I, who are both good readers, the way that we know how to read all the words that we know how to read is because at some point we laboriously sounded those out. Like I'm looking at Citizen Stewart, citizen. At some point you and I were like citizens, sit, sit, citizen, citizen, kitsen, kitsen, citizen, citizen. And then here, this is really key too. A lot of kids aren't going to know what that means. What does citizen mean? And it turns out that the way that that word gets into your memory and I can read it and you can read it and we just need a split second to know what that word is, is because we connected citizen, 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 citizen. Oh, I see those letters. I know the pronunciation. Oh, and I know what that means. When those three things are connected, you can get that form of the word in your brain. And there's a few problems with not teaching kids how to sound out those words. You don't want to teach kids to take their attention away from the words because it is that laborious looking at the word and then sounding it out that gets it into your brain so that it's there forever and it's available to you in an instant. One of the things that was really challenging from a writing perspective, a journalism perspective, a a narrative perspective and putting together Soul to Story is that when you call out this idea that you really need to teach kids to sound out the words rather than looking at the picture, looking at the first letter, or thinking of a word that makes sense, when you kind of point that out, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Like, wait a minute, why were we thinking that like looking at the picture was a good way to read the word? And I think one of the reasons that those strategies took hold is because teachers end up so often in classrooms with a bunch of six-year-olds before them who are there trying to teach to read and who they desperately want to teach how to read And the teachers themselves haven't been taught what they need to know about written English and how to be able to teach it to little kids. So they're desperately looking for, well, how can we do it? How can we help these kids with these words, which it turns out are actually pretty hard to learn how to read for a lot of kids. So like, oh, there's these other strategies. And these experts came along and said, oh, well, you can teach them to do this and this, and you can come a book like this. And you can figure out, you can put a book in their hands at a young age, and we give them these strategies to get through all those difficult words, and it will turn into reading. And it does turn into reading for some kids, because that's enough. They do figure it out. And, and usually, there's a decent amount of sitting on a caregiver's lap, 
maybe that person sounding out the words for them, seeing it a lot, the repetition of recognizing that there is this kind of code of spelling in the English language, and you start to understand the relationships between those letters and those sounds. And some of us learn that pretty easily. I was actually one of those kids. My kids were those kids. So I never really thought about this very much. I have kids who are in their 20s now. This never really occurred to me. And I've been a journalist for a long time. So I actually should have known more about this. I should have thought about this. That feels like a good nuance, though. It's not a contest between something that was a completely failed way of teaching reading and a completely awesome, great way of teaching reading. It was a way that wasn't proven by science, but still worked for some kids enough to where people didn't think enough about it. And if I caught a little bit of the context of what you were saying in there, the group of kids that it possibly was working okay for were the ones that had more resources or had a personal care attendant who was like a reading attendant to them, which wouldn't be kids of color who are in redlined into low opportunity zones of cities, for instance. Yeah. And this is why it's an important moment of looking at ourselves in the mirror, right? So I got interested in this issue years ago through parents of dyslexia. And these parents that I was talking to initially were almost all white mothers, relatively affluent in some of our best public schools. And they did everything right. They read tons to their kids. There were lots of books in their home. Their kids had, in many cases, very you know advanced language comprehension when they started school, right? We have very precocious five-year-olds out there. These were the mothers of many of the precocious five-year-olds who had so many advantages, came into school sort of ready to learn in every way, and then reading didn't happen. So one of the things that I say to people now is that I think for a long time, we've looked at sort of our reading scores, which everyone sort of knows haven't been good for a long time, right? It's like we've had the evidence We know that there are a whole lot of kids, especially black and brown kids, who have not been doing well with reading. But I think it became, we said, oh, well, that was really them. It wasn't us, as in the schools and the teachers, right? It was them. They had a disability. They had a problem. They were distracted. They weren't trying hard enough. Their parents didn't read to them enough. It really was. And hello, let's look at ourselves in the mirror, United States of America 2023, A lot of this has to do with the fact that it was relatively affluent white women who came along and said, hello, my kids have this problem too. So maybe your narrative isn't quite right. That, you know, like there are plenty of kids who are struggling to learn how to read. And by the way, this has a lot to do with the instruction. And by the way, because my kid went to school and wasn't taught how to read, I figured out a way to teach my kid myself. Or I figured out a way to find a tutor that I pay 60, 70, 80, $158 an hour to. So now when I look at the test scores that have been telling us for decades that we have a problem and everyone was saying, oh, well, that's poverty. Poverty definitely has something to do with it. Don't get me wrong. We can get into that. But when you look at those scores now, what I see is that lots of kids aren't getting the instruction they need. Some kids are getting the instruction outside of school. And those kids tend to be advantaged in some very important ways by having parents with checkbooks that can pay for them to get the help that they need and or parents with a lot of time and a lot of times time and money go together, time to teach them themselves. And so lots of kids aren't getting the instruction they need. Some kids are getting the instruction that they need outside of school, and that's leaving a whole lot of kids not getting what they need. So to move 
from problem to solution. Yes. But before we do, I want to make this transition on this last point that you just said. So my organization, Education Post, did a piece last year called The New Jane Crow. It's tracing the history of the power of white women within education to maintain white supremacy within education. But it also had a timeline of white women allies throughout time who have been doing the opposite and fighting the opposite. And we wanted to do that piece because... White women, especially as mothers, are often a very powerful force in education. Number one, it's a very feminized field, period. And number two, it's a very white woman heavy field, too. And then also politically, for various purposes, white women and mothers are easy to weaponize against everybody based on what they believe. And the story that you just told me is kind of the counter to the weaponizing of white women. There's something that John Powell talks about called targeted universalism. And it's the type of thing where, just to give an example of a theory that he has, the little divot things when you walk across a crosswalk, that little divot is meant for people in wheelchairs to be able to get up on curves easier. Before they used to have that, it was kind of a problem. You would roll to that thing and you would face a barrier. So that is something special that we carved out for a population in the United States. But as it turns out, it's good for everybody because if you're doing luggage, or if you're riding a bike or you have little kids riding a bike. It's something that is for a targeted purpose but has a universal benefit. So when white moms start investigating, hey, this reading thing, you guys might have this wrong. (laughs) And then they start collecting and educating and rethinking things and then agitating and then weaponizing their privilege, their social privilege to make change. To me, that's the divot. That's the carve out in the thing. And then, you know, when a journalist comes along and writes it up for everybody and then popularizes it and get it out into the world. And now 14 states, maybe more, are introducing bills to overhaul their literacy instruction. I mean, listen, if I were you, I'd be drinking boxed wine every night thinking to myself how great I am. 14 states, (laughs) like 14 states introducing bills to overhaul literacy instruction. Do you think that's driving towards now from problem to solution? How do you feel about the legislation of change in this area? Are we going the right way? Are the bills good ones that you know of? And are they pushing the right thing in your estimate being one person? So there have been a number of bills that have been introduced since Sold a Story came out. And we have an article on our website, which is about that. And we have been able to find a decent number of links to Sold a Story. And I think a lot of this legislation that's been recent focuses quite a bit on curriculum. And I will return to that because that's really what we've focused on in Sold a Story. I will say, of course, that there are years now of lots of legislation about reading. And a lot of it is because these moms, these dyslexia moms and others have been pushing various kinds of legislation. And you can see it following a certain kind of arc, right? Like a lot of the early laws, and we're talking 10 years ago or more, were about like dyslexia screening and intervention for kids with dyslexia. And they were sort of special ed oriented, right? And now I think we're sort of coming around to understanding as my reporting has helped to point out and lots of people's work has pointed out that we have some core instruction issues. And so now I think a lot of the legislation is focusing on some of the core instruction. So it's a long legacy of lots of legislation. Now, in an ideal world, would we need legislation to change education? No, it's not ideal to have to pass a law. But as Mark Seidenberg, the cognitive scientist at the University of Wisconsin said in one of our bonus episodes that came out in May, his thought is that this is sort of a last resort in many cases, that in many cases there's been activism and pushing and trying to get the education system to change when it comes to how kids are taught to read and it hasn't necessarily been working in all places. I think public policy is important and delicate, and the real world is messy, especially the real world of education. 
Laws have unintended consequences always. It's almost like you can't really prevent it. And policy is sort of like a blunt force instrument, you know, trying to do something actually pretty nuanced. I have concerns about the policy for many reasons. One concern is, oh, they passed a law and now this is going to set us up for a few years later being like, oh, well, where's the results? That didn't work. And so I am concerned that we're setting ourselves up for disappointment, as we often do in education. Passing a law or handing a teacher a new curriculum doesn't mean that they're going to implement the new curriculum or they're going to follow the law. So a lot of things that happen with policy, really, you have to get like inside the box and look at the implementation and the accountability. Are people following the laws? There's the spirit of the law, the actuality of the law. I mean, some of these laws come in with really good intentions to say, hey, we don't want you to use X, Y, and Z, and we do want you to use A, B, and C. In some of these cases, and I know of them because they're writing to me, someone in a school district has already been trying F, G, and H, and now they're going to have to drop that and do something that's on the list of things that are approved. And in some cases, that's going to be a problem, right? They're going to be forced to give up things that maybe are working, that are really put into place really thoughtfully. Well, to be a little bit more harsh than that, though, like I know you're not going all the way there with this, but... Okay, you can do it. Well, I can do it. And you have a colleague, Alex Baumhart. I read this piece in Oregon Capital Chronicle, and it came through my feed probably through you or someone else. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was this chart that's in there about the curriculum that is being used in Portland. And it kind of highlights like five districts or so here, just to give an example. And the governor there, I don't know if the governor is collecting heat or just being kind of talked about for not demanding that all districts use approved curriculum. And, you know, so in this report from Alex, it shows like Portland is using this curriculum that is on the state's approved list and meets expectations. But Beaverton School District is using one that is not on the approved list and does not meet expectations. So half of me would say local control and school boards are supposed to govern these things and whatever. But then that kind of starts to feel like an article of faith. I don't know who taught me that. Like, that's the way that's supposed to be, right? Some libertarian fairy dust sprinkled on me somewhere, and I just believed that at some point. But it does feel like that allows for there to be a state where district by district, there could be negligent malpractice taking place that experts know for sure is not going to end well. And then that creates a problem for me. Like, do I all of a sudden now believe in kind of top down? Hey, guys, this is what we're doing. I mean, everybody loves to talk about Finland. Someone once told me about Finland, like, listen, they don't have lots of national arguments about national curriculum. They pass a curriculum nationally, right? But then again, Finland's the size of Minnesota. Yeah, I'll say two things about what you just said. As a school board member, as a person interested in education, it's more than fairy dust that is this idea of local control. Like, this is a real thing. I mean, this is actually written into the establishment of the Federal Department of Education in the late 1970s. It's basically written into the establishment of the Department of Education that the feds can't tell the states sort of what to teach. That was like a really clear line in sand because this is actually a really important line that has been there from the beginning in American education. Local control is deeply baked into the system. And it is true in some states that there are similar kinds of rules saying that the State Department of Education can't tell the local school districts what to do. So it's more than fairy dust. It's like a real thing for better or worse. I think there are some good things about it and some not good things about it. 
But what you're saying actually about the curriculum, I think is really interesting. And it gets back to sort of what Sold a Story was about. One of the things that Sold a Story really focused on is how did this happen? How did we get to this point? And I think that one of the ways we got to this point is that in education, we're really good at adding things, but not taking things away. And so one of the ways we got into balanced literacy is there was big fights about like, should you teach phonics and these foundational skills? And that was a big part of the reading wars. And what balanced literacy said is, oh, that's okay. Yes, we can teach some phonics. We're not against phonics because that's one strategy you can use to figure out the words. So phonics was embraced. People are like, check, check, check. I've got some phonics. I've got all the five elements that were identified by the National Reading Panel Report in the early 2000s. Check, check, check. And so no everyone was like, oh, well, what's the problem? We're doing the science. We're doing it. And what they didn't take away was this foundational idea that kids have lots of different ways to learn how to read the words. Rather than like, oh, there's actually one way to teach kids how to read words that is going to teach them the most effective, efficient way to get those words into their memory and to get them automatic at reading the words. So we're really good at adding things and not taking them away. So one of the things in the wake of Sold a Story that we're seeing in many states in these new packages of science of reading legislation is these bans on approaches that include the cueing method, which is what we were looking at in Sold a Story. That's the idea that kids can use all different kinds of cues or clues to figure out the words. So I think in some ways, a lot of people got the message that Sold a Story was trying to take to the country, which is like, there are some things you've got to take away. But just pause for a moment and think like, so they're banning things. They're banning curriculum. They're banning certain books. They're banning ideas. Think about the time we're living in. That seems kind of frightening banning things, right? So it's just very delicate. We're living in a world where we're seeing the banning of stuff all over the place. And I think some of that is kind of dangerous. So I don't know, bans can be dangerous, can't they? They can be. They can. Let me just back up. Education is a very science-driven endeavor. There's a lot of collective practices and knowledge bases and scientific things that have taken place over decades, long before I was born, long before you were born, that make up the sum total of what we call education today. And we are, I think, this is just one guy talking, we are progressing decade by decade in some ways that a lot of you know education critics don't like to give credit for, but it's just true. It's just true 100 years ago there was a smaller knowledge base and it was different. It's super popular to say education hasn't changed at all. Classrooms look exactly the same that they used to. The summer was built on the agrarian calendar, even though that's not exactly how agrarian works. <laughs> you know, like there are these things we say to ourselves, no, it's changed. I was a kid of the seventies and what we knew in the seventies was better than what we knew in the fifties and so on and so on. And what we knew in the nineties and so on. So it's plodding along and that's different in my mind than a governor in one state saying, I'm going to ban thinking that I don't like. I'm going to ban schools of thought in higher ed that I don't like because I can become president by banning that. Or another governor, difference between that and somewhere like Mississippi saying, so many of our kids can't read. We need to figure out what to do and what to stop doing. And I don't know you know, your take on the Mississippi miracle. They're adding the word miracle after Mississippi. I get a little suspicious whenever I hear that word on things, you know. But something did happen in Mississippi where they changed what they were doing and they saw some results. And I think other governors are taking a look at that now. The Mississippi miracle, I don't like that term for various reasons, but mostly because it was a lot of people working really hard over a long period of time. What happened in Mississippi has been in the works for 20 plus years. It wasn't a miracle. It was hard work. And that's why we can't expect that to happen now, 
right? Like we're making various changes. So in a couple of years, people are going to be like, where's the miracle? Well, no, Mississippi actually really started in the early 2000s. You know, there are a lot of pieces to this puzzle, right? The teacher education side of things, right? That law that they did in 2013 started really more focusing on the coaching happening in schools. I think even the curriculum that's being used is something that statewide has been newer to Mississippi. Like that wasn't as much a part of their original law and the pieces of their legislation. So yeah, this stuff takes a long time. And Mississippi has been working on this for a long time. And it's incredible what they've done. You know, One of the things that makes me most hopeful is I hope what we're going to see is just a narrowing of the gaps among kids, right? Where the kids who have been struggling the most, those kids who are like below basic on the NAEP, for example, are no longer. Right now, we're in a situation where like more than 50% of Black fourth graders in the United States are below basic on that NAEP test. That is like so not okay. And what we really need to focus on is those kids who are below basic. We need to get those kids up to basic and above. Not everyone needs to be a great, great reader or love reading. We need kids to be able to do it. We need kids to be like functionally literate and have the skills they need to be able to access what they need to and what they want to in life. Do you have any opinion on what could be just a pass fail, a better metric that we can have as parents, as states, as districts, so that we're sharing. When we say something like NAEP, there's a lot floating around in the world right now. If you're a mere mortal and you're a civilian about what NAEP means, do you have any opinion on how we might do better about measuring this in ways that mortals can understand? Mm, I think the fact that the mere mortals of parents in the system haven't been able to understand necessarily the information they're being given is a big part of the problem and how we've gotten here. I mean, of course, it goes back to our local control. We don't actually really have a way to measure all the kids all over the country. The NAEP test was put into place as a way to try to take a temperature check, essentially, and compare states and in some cases now districts to each other. And so this goes back to local control. I don't think we ever will have like a test that all kids take. And a test, you know, tells you a limited amount of stuff. So no measurement is perfect, right? I mean, I think what a lot of schools are doing and collecting information on and parents should be asking about are there are really good assessments that can tell you when a kid is young, kindergarten, first, second, third grade, how they're doing on sort of various subsets of skills that eventually lead to good reading skills, right? So like, what are their strengths and weaknesses when it comes to all the things that add up to proficient reading? You know, I think we've run into a problem, and I talk about this in Sold a Story, the benchmark assessment system, this sort of leveling system where your kid is on a level A through Z. It's misleading in a lot of ways. And if you listen to episode five of Sold a Story, you can sort of hear about that leveling system and what are some of the problems with it. I know a big problem for schools who want to get rid of that is that it's become so important for teachers and parents. They've gotten so used to, well, what level is my kid? Is my kid a C, a D, an F, a G? Is she making progress? Is she where she's supposed to be? That leveling system is deeply ingrained in the American system. And it's very hard to give up things that are deeply ingrained. It's very hard to get used to another way of taking your temperature. I hope we're going to get there. There's a recent report out by the National Council on Teacher Quality about the teacher preparation that does or doesn't happen for teachers to teach reading. And in that, I noticed that 
you know, Randy Weingart from the American Federation of Teachers is one of the people that says, you know, hey, we've been agreeing with this for a long time. And I think when you have an issue that starts to feel or could feel apolitical or mostly apolitical, you have the opportunity for more stakeholders and people to come together and answer like the question I just asked, can we make this easier? There's so many parents in the United States. This came out from Learning Heroes not long ago. So many parents in the United States who have a gap between what they think their kids are doing and what is actually happening. And the gap is they believe that their kids are reading on grade level, for instance, even when they're not. Something like 80%. Like, you know, when you have 40% of the kids reading on grade level and you have 80% of their parents thinking that their kids are reading on grade level, that means we have an information problem. We should be figuring this out. So I'm hopeful we're all going to come together. And in large part, I think it starts with work like yours. Just information. Who will tell the people? And you've done such a good job at it. And I'm really appreciative of the work you did. And I want to keep talking to you over time to do more. But what's giving you hope? What's making you hopeful in this work? Teachers are, you know, I just, I get a lot of messages from teachers. And I just think there are a lot of teachers out there who are really working hard to get this right. A lot of them didn't know this. And I'm with you, what you just said. I think knowledge is the most important thing here. It's not the only thing, right? Like once you know, you then need some help in the how, and that's really, really important. But I think one of the reasons that the reporting I've done has resonated is because it's helped people understand the sort of why some basic understandings of how kids learn to read, why it's important to teach kids how to read the words, right? There's just a lot of teachers who didn't know that. And now they're starting to know it and they really want to get it right. And they know, they've known in their gut for a long time that something wasn't quite right. This goes back to the hiding in plain sight problem we were talking about at the beginning. It's like teachers knew that there was a problem, something was missing, Something wasn't quite right, but they were sort of looking up. It's kind of an emperor has new clothes kind of thing. They're kind of looking up being like, is anyone else having this problem? No, I guess not. Like from above, they are being told, oh no, this is how you do it. You do it. And so many of these teachers feel like they weren't doing it right. Like they were working really hard and doing all the things they were told to do. And yet there were still always some kids or maybe a lot of kids in their classes who weren't learning very well. And often these teachers blame themselves first. Well, it must be me. I'm not good enough. I'm not working hard enough. I don't know this well enough. So I will read another book. I will go to another professional development. I will try more. I will work really hard. And then they get to a point, reasonably so, they're working really hard and they start to think, well, maybe it's not me. Maybe it's them. You know, maybe it's the kids. You know, they start to blame the kids and their parents. Oh, well, they weren't read to enough. They must have a learning disability. They're not trying hard enough. This is what the parents are then told all the time. Your kid's not trying hard enough. Have you read him enough books? Try reading to him more at home. So this is how a problem ends up hiding in plain sight. It's like a lot of people are having the same gut level feelings, but they're looking around and they're not seeing it out there in the world. And that's what's changing because of the journalism, not just that I've done, but many others have done like Alex Baumhart and many others. It's getting out there. People are reading about it. They're hearing about it. They're hearing other parents talking about it. They're learning about the parents who are coming to the school board member saying, let's have some coffee. I've got a binder full of stuff here. Those parents are finding each other. 
like, oh, I'm not alone. There's a parent over here with a binder full of stuff. And that's my kid. That's my problem too. So I think we're having like a little bit of a tipping point here, right? A problem hiding in plain sight. And now everyone's like, oh yeah, I've got a little bit of that problem. I've got a little bit of that problem. That one too. Oh, here it is. Oh, that's me. And that's huge. So now your question was why I'm hopeful. And it's because we have such a huge opportunity right now, such a huge opportunity to get this right. And it's going to be difficult and it's going to be messy and there's going to be resistance But you said before that it was apolitical. I'm not sure it's apolitical, but I think it's like (laughs) multi-political. I think it's just like (laughs) multi-partisan, you know? And I look at my own social media feeds and I've got people on the far left and the far right and everywhere in between. And you know what? It sounds sort of Pollyanna-ish or something, but like the thing that unites all those people is they've got a kid, their own child or a bunch of students in their class who haven't been learning how to read and they want to get it right. And they know the importance of reading. Yes. The the material consequences of not reading are important to people. It's interesting because in every Everything that I've written, my editors are always like, we've got to get up at the beginning, you know, like, what are the consequences when you don't read? And I, you know, I sort of agree with that. But I feel like, you know what, when you start to lay this out, everyone knows, everyone knows the consequences. Even if your kid isn't struggling, you know how important that is. And parents will spend so much money that if they can find it and time and energy and tears and sweat fighting for their kid. And here's the thing that makes a difference. I mean, you have kids, I have kids. There's nothing you wouldn't do for your children. That's right. That's the thing that we're calling on. The love that parents have for their children is like the strongest force in humanity. Well, all of that gives me hope. So Emily Hanford, senior producer and correspondent for APM Reports, well celebrated for great work you're doing with Soul to Story and you're at least five, six years of really doggedly going after this story. It gives me hope as journalism matters. Good storytelling makes a difference in the world and everybody who is writing stories every day, who even questions that, should look at these type of water springs of public understanding and think, I have a really strong position in creating the public understanding that makes a difference. So I want everybody listening who is writing the stories and journalists to think of themselves in that way every day. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining us. Thank you. Friends, I really appreciate, as always, you guys listening to the show. And for those of you who have made it all the way to the end, I really appreciate that. The show is growing, and we would love for you to continue helping us to grow the show and to get more people to hear it. You can do that by, one, sharing it, subscribing to it if you haven't already, and leaving a rating for the show and a review of what you have liked, maybe some constructive feedback. We'd love to hear it and have you as part of the growing community for the Citizen Stewart Show. Also, we love to hear from you. So there are two ways that you can contact the show to let us know any of your ideas, your thoughts, your feedback. One of those ways is to leave us a voicemail at 321-213-9171. Again, that's 321-213-9171. 9171. The other way that you can reach us is to send us an email at citizenstuartshow at thebranchmedia.org. Again, you can send us an email at citizenstuartshow at thebranchmedia.org. And on that branch media part, as always, I tell you guys, please go check out thebranchmedia.org and look at the other shows that we have on the network. I'm happy to be a part of a constellation of shows that have very different ways of entertaining and informing and getting you involved in conversations from many different perspectives. One thing that I've loved more than anything else in my time in advocacy is kind of trading barbs and trading kind of thoughtful ideas with people that don't think just like I do 
And that is what the Branch Media does. So go and check them out. As always, we are thankful that you have listened to the Citizen Stewart Show this week, and we will see you again next week.